The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The all-new Hyundai Santa Fe's features ensure that you can take on any adventure. What kind of features? Well, how about the available H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud? Or the standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together? How about available dual wireless charging pads so no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead phone? We're always trying to think about those great spring and summer getaways, but with a car like the Hyundai Santa Fe, anywhere can be your next adventure. To learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe, go to HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. That's Danny Cannell. I'm Chip Patterson. Happy Monday to all of you. As always, we are live here, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on a Monday. A lot to get to. We will be going through and looking back at some of the weekend headlines, which on this Monday includes uh, a wild Sunday night affair. We will also be trying to uh, finally get uh, our last thoughts in a section that we're going to call it a pun further review. You know, I might walk back something that I say on a Saturday night. It might be possible that when we're recording at like 12.30 a.m. on Saturday night, I might be a little off. So, you know, it's a good chance to be able to, um, you know, take our breath and reset before we move on to week two. We've got a lot of injury news here on a Monday. Another thing that we're going to get is uh, headlines coming from all the head coach availabilities throughout the day. But in a very, very unique part of this Monday, We've got one last week, one game tonight. Uh, it is Ole Miss. It is Louisville. It is in Atlanta. That Lane Kiffin w- is not with the team, did not travel with the team after testing po- positive for COVID-19. So that is something to take into consideration. The line on the game has dropped from Ole Miss around 10 to Ole Miss minus 8.5. Our over-under is still probably in the, what, 70-sums? We still probably. looking at like, 75. 75, so down about a field goal from, I guess, where it was uh, at its peak. So as we sit here about five-ish hours away from kickoff, um, any lingering thoughts on the games? Have your opinions changed at all with the news of Lane Kiffin being out or anything else that you've seen from the weekend? First of all, all takes are final here. I don't care if it's 2 a.m. on a Saturday. If I'm saying it, I mean it, and I'm never backing down from it. I would expect nothing less. Good for you. I'm I'm glad that you stand by uh, the takes, no matter how uh, half baked or wholly baked they are at any time. I I I don't really have anything to take back, but I will say I did go. I didn't watch any of Florida and FAU live on Saturday, and I did go back and I watched it yesterday because I had it on the DVR. And you know, I drafted Florida on our fantasy team. 
and I'm not, I mean, again, it's week one, so you never really want to take too much away from it, but I'm not enthusiastic about the draft pick as, as much as I was at the time, because I feel like anytime you're watching a team you consider to be an SEC contender, maybe, and a possible college football playoff dark horse, and their quarterback is kind of outplayed by Nikosi Perry, it's not a great sign. <laughs> I haven't broken down the game yet. I really want to watch it to see. I kind of was, I had it on like a secondary TV and I was paying attention to it. It wasn't ever really like in jeopardy. So it's not one like you flip on to watch a lot. But the final stat line, I think, is deceiving. I think they had over 500 yards total offense. I don't, and I'm, you know, I've said this all offseason. You trust Dan Mullen with the quarterback. You trust Dan Mullen with the quarterback. He'll get the most out of Emory Jones. I'm a little bit worried about Emory Jones. Like, that's a game you're supposed to. And now, let's make sure. Because overreactions galore out there. There's a lot of keyboard coaches out there this weekend. Oh, my goodness, did I see them all. So, I want to make sure I'm not that. It's one game. First time starting. Maybe he's a little bit nervous. But there's also a part of me that kind of felt like they wanted to go to Emory Jones at some point in the last couple of years and they gave him opportunities and he just, he never really rose to the occasion. And then Kyle Trash just took it from him. Um, so I'm a little bit worried about the passing attack at Florida. Um, but I, I, I'm definitely like looking at them, like you were saying, dark horse, like, cause I'm, you know, Georgia has that stranglehold. It appears on the East. I'm like, how oh, are we sure Florida's going away? And I was a little bit more optimistic before that game of the Gators that they would mount a challenge than from what I saw. But again, it's one week. So, you know, most it's kind of a preseason game. I don't overreact to preseason NFL. So I want to make sure I don't overreact to a preseason Florida, you know, FAU game. But it wasn't it wasn't confidence inspiring, that's for sure. The um Tom, have you changed your your thoughts or or picks at all? Uh Danny checked the mic input. Um will you uh, have you changed your picks or your your rating at all uh, about tonight's game, Ole Miss Louisville, or any of your expectations? Not too much, honestly. No, I mean, there is a concern, but it's hard for me to figure out what it's worth because, you know, Lane Kiffin is Ole Miss's play caller. So if he's not there and he's not calling the plays, like the one thing about that team last year, and I felt the one thing that makes them dangerous and one thing I think that makes Lane Kiffin a good head coach is that I think he is a very smart play caller. I think that he's... He's aggressive in that it always seems like every single play is designed to be a touchdown or at least has the possibility of being a touchdown. He's very smart about when to call what, noticing what defenses are giving him, noticing what he could take advantage of. So not having him on the sideline tonight calling the plays, I think, will have an impact on the game. It's just I don't know how much because I keep thinking of that Louisville defense last year and how it wasn't that great. And I'm still expecting with or without Kiffin there this to be kind of a fun, dumb, entertaining college football game. And really, that's all I'm hoping for. But I haven't I don't have a play ready for tonight. No, like I've, I've got to come up with a Twitter tip of the day for it. And I really don't know what direction I'm going to go yet. I don't you think uh, Lebby's going to be more than uh yeah, like capable, and I think he's called a lot of them anyway. So I don't think the offense will struggle much. They got head coaching experience on the defensive side of the ball. Like, I don't know if it's going to be that much of a difference. I, I think the actual play calling, like the play selection, probably shouldn't change that much. Jeff Levy's a really, really good, good play caller. I think you know what was was a really, really good, good job at UCF and and at prior spots. Um, 
the one reason I, I took the under in this game at 76.5, and I, I think you know under 75 is still worth a look. And I also played Louisville, you know, on Locks Pod. Um, this is not the reason I took the Louisville, but the reason I took the under did have something to do with the Lane Kiffin thing. If you are stepping in for your boss one day, you may run the business really well, but you may not take the optimal amount of risk, right? Yeah. Like, and I this is where I, this is where something that Lane Kiffin scores very highly in terms of optimizing drives. They get a lot of points out of their drives, especially when they get into those sort of questionable areas. And you know, if you're the interim, you don't want to screw it up. So you don't want to be the guy that's going to take all the flack. Oh, look. He's Jeff Levy. He's some crazy offensive guy. He doesn't care about defense. I can't believe he went for that fourth down, even if we know that going for that fourth down actually is the optimal efficient play. So I think, you, you know, a little more, you know, now, you know, Kiffin use, he ascribes to that book, right? Yeah. The, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm assuming they have the same coach that's assigned to the book that gets in lanes here, that gets in, um, and everyone like, and has the book there, the analytics book that says, this is what you're supposed to do in this situation. But there is, and this is what every coach would tell you, and I would hope it's true, there is a an input of human element. Like, this is what the book says, but are you really going to go with it? Or you have to be aware of situation, you have to be aware of momentum, like some other aspects of it. So, yeah, in situations, it could become, you know, pretty big. Well, how much um, – do you give Louisville a shot to win this game? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean – I think anytime Ole Miss's defense is on the field, the other team has a chance to win. I think an eight and a half point spread says something different when the total is in the mid seventies, when the, the total is in the forties. <laughs> right. You're just, exactly. You're talking so it's going to be wild. Yeah, you're talking about a very, very different ball game. Uh, one of the honestly, like more significant, more impactful, and uh, and more entertaining games of the entire week one slate had to wait until Sunday night for it to occur. It is Notre Dame surviving a late push from Florida State, winning in overtime. There was a lot going on, Bud. You were there in the stadium. Uh, you've just you made terrific time. I think you just got out of the car and uh, and into the studio to be able to get us going. So I'm sure that you know whether it's on the Nolcast or you know in the drive, you've been able to sort of put some thoughts together. I'll give you first crack at this, and of course, Danny, uh, I want to hear your thoughts on sort of where where this team is right now because I saw you you know tweeting. You it seems like it, there's a lot of pride. Seems like there's a lot of excitement, uh, like in a loss Florida state still still seems like a winner for the weekend. Um, so I guess whichever way you want to take it, bud scenes from the stadium or, or your thoughts on the way the team looked in person. Sure. Uh, you know, stadium first, obviously on the night they, that they honored Bobby Bowden, you know, I thought that was, that was a pretty touching moment at halftime. I don't know how much they showed on the broadcast, but the, the, the band, band spelled out Bobby as they played amazing grace. They, they had Ann on the field pregame. That, that was, that was a really cool moment. Um, you know, the to the end of the game, I went to Florida State, and I've covered this thing for you know more than 10 years. I really don't recall a game where they the crowd gave FSU a standing ovation after losing. Like, I think the crowd really had awareness that they were very outgunned, especially along some of the lines of scrimmage stuff. And I thought they coached their their, their butts off and, and really played their butts off and, and didn't quit and, you know, and, and played to win. Um, they they had over 100 recruits in the stands. The teams that they recruit against, think about it. Miami, Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, LSU, all had road games or neutral site games where you're not going to host a lot of recruits. Auburn and Florida, who they also recruit against, they had pretty crappy opponents at home on very hot you know, games, not going to have a ton of recruits in attendance for that. 
they really had the entire eyeballs of the Southeast recruits on them last night. And it would have been easy for them to play slower, to punt the ball, just to keep the game respectable, to say and, and have a message, hey, look, guys, we're only a player or two away from being pretty good. That player could be you. But they, but I thought Norvell sent a message to his team. He's like, I believe in you guys. We're gonna we're gonna play aggressively. We're gonna go for this. From the word go, though, they offensively they had to try to trick Notre Dame. They've had a lot of issues with the offensive line at camp. I actually think this offensive line will be better as the season goes on. They just haven't had many days where everybody's been there. Milton as well hasn't been there for you know quite a bit of camp, as you guys know. They were trying to trick them from kind of from the word go. And I thought they did a pretty good job of creating explosive run plays with some of the formation stuff they did. That was impressive. But the number one thing, and it's it's one game, so it's hard to take away a lot of stuff that'll that'll matter going forward. But a 48% run stuff rate against Notre Dame and Kyron Williams and, and Chris Tyree, I think that has like legitimate significance. They have guys on the defensive line this year, and it was a little tough to tell because I knew they were kicking the crap out of FSU's offensive line in practice, but given who was missing from FSU's line in practice, I didn't really want to buy into that. I'm buying in now. They have a lot of guys in the defensive line who I think will probably play on Sundays, and uh, that will matter in this league going forward. I um, I was gutted. Like, I was oh, gutted man. last night. I was root- – and I – you know, I'm a – I'm a Florida State graduate. I root for them, but I'm also an analyst. Like you guys know, I have no problem picking against them. I have no problem calling it out like and seeing it like it is. But I really wanted this for Norvell, for the players, because they haven't had many, you know, great. They had North Carolina last year, but it was in the middle of the season. It was kind of the season was already awash. No one was given a chance, and then it didn't really impact anything. But I wanted it for them to do it in front of the fans, right? And – you guys know I, you know, I didn't see the game plan out like that at all. I said it was going to be a low-scoring game, which I thought it was. All of a sudden, Jack Cohn comes out and he looks like Mahomes. He's throwing it all over the place. Um, you know, Florida State's responding; they're getting big plays. Like all of a sudden, we see this shootout. Um, but I just like I was hurting for them last night. Like that's a tough way to lose. And then you get the Milton story un- unfolding, and it feels like this is the Hollywood ending. Everyone's going to get and. Thank you, Mackenzie Milton, for making ESPN like Florida State, right? Like, that was for the first time in maybe 20 years. It felt like everyone liked Florida State and was rooting for Florida State. I even saw Gators, like, saying, I don't, I hate Florida State, but you have to root for them now. And then it just comes up short like that. It was gutting. And I'm sure those guys are just torn today and weren't able to sleep last night. But just to echo on what Bud said, I, there was a couple of things I wanted to point out from the game that I, and I saw some reaction afterwards that was, I don't know. I just thought it was like very much like reactionary. So the fourth down call in the middle of the third quarter, I saw what Bud said. I totally agreed. And I, I love the mindset from Norvell. And I don't think people can appreciate what it means to the team that he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going for it. We're not going to play field position with Notre Dame. We're going for the win. We're going to let them hang. I believe in you guys. And even though they didn't get it, and I didn't love the play call either, but even though they didn't get it, like, it sends a message, I believe in you guys. And I think they responded to such. They go down 18, and the last three years, that would have been lights out, shut it down, everyone go home early. But they didn't. They kept battling. So that was the first thing I noticed. I loved it. The other thing was, and I saw some people, you know, well, where was Mackenzie Milton? Why didn't he start? What, you know, what, what happened here? And it felt like clearly 
Like Mackenzie Milton looked way more comfortable from the pocket. And we had all been preached to this offseason. And, you know, Mike Norvell had been saying, oh, Jordan Travis has really developed as a passer. He's way better now from the pocket. He's learned the system. He is not comfortable in the pocket. And then you saw the difference in a quarterback who's used to making reads, who will sit there, doesn't panic right away, but kind of has a great feel for when to run. But I think two things unfold. One, the injury. I think Mackenzie Milton missed a lot of time, and that's hard to have a guy out and say, well, I'm going to start him, even though he's missed a ton of practice. And I saw the scrimmage when they both played full. Neither one looked great. Like, they looked okay, but neither one was, like, shining. Some guys are gamers, and I think that's what you saw from Mackenzie Milton. Somebody who, when the lights come on, bam, they come on. And so now I think, and it was clearly, like, the decision was made. The helmet pops off. That is a one-play thing. Like, you can come right back in. But Mackenzie Milton, all of a sudden, one play, down the field, third out conversion. Everyone's like, oh, let's let this keep going. And you saw the offense come to life because there was actually a legitimate threat. And this is not a knock against Jordan Travis, but I think by now there's a lot of tape on them. People are going to see limitations, and they're going to start playing the run, stop the run, go ahead, try to beat us outside. Maybe, yeah, he throws a pretty deep ball. But going through progression, staying in the pocket, reading things out is not his strength, and that becomes very limiting. So now I think it's Mackenzie Milton's show. Like it has to be. And then you kind of hope that he's healthy. You hope that he stays healthy. And I do think it's a different game with him in there. And then just the whole the, – just the bad luck of icing the kicker. Like I didn't want to say anything, but I, the longer it was unfolding – and then they oh, did the Flanagan's crews take so long. Oh. Like, I don't think Jeff's a bad referee okay. as far as the calls, but they take so long. And every every play does not need a co- chip. You're an ACC guy, you know. If you They're get a Flanagan crew, it's like let's have a conference after every play. I'm like, what what are we doing here? It's the, the uh, it's the conference of attorneys. All right, all they got to <laughs> do is like have their billable hours and uh, make sure we triple check uh, all the different aspects of this. Tom, you were live blogging the game. You put in the hours and the written words for CBSSports.com, so I don't want to shortchange you here. And, I mean, also, it's a lot of, like, good things for Florida State. Notre Dame couldn't do the one thing we normally count on Notre Dame to do, which is dominate at the line of scrimmage and run the ball. And while some of that might be, you know, Jermaine Johnson was feasting, the rest of the defensive line, as Bud mentioned, uh, exceeded our preseason expectations. But, you know, there's a Notre Dame side of this, too. Yeah, I think that there are a few factors at play there. I think that one, Florida State's defensive line is much better than it has been in recent years. And I think that's going to be a big thing for them because their run defense was bad last year. And from what I saw last night, I feel like it's going to be much improved. And then I also think that Florida State's game plan defensively was we're going to try to take away Notre Dame's run game. That's where our focus is going to be. And we're going to force Jack Cohn, who isn't exactly the most heralded quarterback in the country. You know, he was in that Wisconsin offense where quarterbacks aren't asked to do a whole lot. And it was like, all right, well, we'll make Cohn beat us with, you know, with vertical routes. And I think that Jack Cohn, for the most part, kind of showed people like while he was at Wisconsin, he wasn't asked to do a whole lot. He doesn't have a huge arm. But the one thing he was capable of doing was hitting vertical routes down the seams, especially to his tight ends at Wisconsin. So we saw a lot of that with Michael Meyer. We saw Kevin Austin finally come on after missing the last two years due to both, you know, like disciplinary reasons and injuries, giving the Irish more of a vertical presence outside the numbers. And also there was one play, Braden Lindsay was absolutely wide open and Cone just didn't see him that I felt like had Cone saw him was probably going to be a touchdown. So 
I think Florida State was giving them that, daring them to beat them that way, and Jack Cohn in that offense was doing it enough. And then the only real time Kyron Williams had an impact was on that one screen, which is just a perfectly timed call by Tommy Reese, who continues to impress me every time I watch Notre Dame. I think he's doing a fantastic job as their play caller. So I got to eat my words on there because I did mock that hire a little bit when it was first made. But I think I think if you're the Irish or you're a Notre Dame fan, you're kind of just relieved to get out of there with that win. Because when you were up 38 to 20, letting Florida State get back in the game and give it, you know, the offense kind of stalled. Their defense really came through. Mackenzie Milton just lit the place on fire from an energy and like a crowd perspective that really kind of swung the, you know, momentum or the confidence to Florida State's side. So to just hold on and get out of there with a win, I think is going to be a relief for the Irish. I think going forward, they're, you know, it's the run game, I think is going to be, it's, it'll be fixed. I think that they've got too good of an offensive line and too many good running backs. And I also think not having Sebo Flemister last night probably hurt them a little bit in the run game because he's kind of a more physical guy that maybe could have done a little bit more inside the tackles with the way that they were getting pushed around in there. And so I, I'm not super down on the Irish after that one. I think that's just one of those, you know, really tough road game to open the season. And another thing, like we mentioned too, like, these are all teams that have played in empty stadiums for the last year. So for Notre Dame to come into that atmosphere on the night where they're, you know, memorial, they're doing the memorial for Bobby Bowden with fans who haven't been able to be in that stadium like that in a long time. And while their team's playing better than it has in a long time, I think Notre Dame just, you know, they had to withstand it and they did and they'll move on. And I think, I think both teams probably feel really good about themselves after that win, even if it was a closer game than Notre Dame hoped. The uh, the Brian Kelly comment that lingers with me is not that comment. It was <laughs> it was the fact that he said, um, it, "Yeah, we're not here to be throwing it all over the yard." Like he just spelled it out. He's like, he's "Like, yeah, we did it well. It's not what we want to do. Like, we would have rather been able to run the ball more because if they'd run the ball more effectively, then they probably would have had better drives in the fourth quarter, and they probably wouldn't have given all those opportunities for Florida State to come back in the game." So. Um, yeah, it's a. It was an interesting stylistic. Uh, they were even going like, Notre Dame was running no huddle a little bit in like the second quarter. Yeah, just, what, they came yeah. out five wide. What? What are they doing? The going, in the game empty, going five wide, empty with pace. This is nuts. I'm. I'm looking forward to continuing to track Notre Dame, a team that I think is very good. Florida State, uh, a team that you know clearly has exceeded some of the expectations uh, within the context of this game. Do y'all think this can be? replicated is this a tone setter for the entire season is this a bowl team in Tallahassee I'll say this the schedule doesn't get any easier like we all knew that when we looked at this we would have chalked up Notre Dame as a loss right mm-hmm. and strength of schedule is like one of the top three or four most difficult oh, yeah. out of 130 FBS teams by like all strength of schedule metrics there's a lot left I mean the, the Miami outcome kind of gives you some hope like, man, if Miami's that behind at Bama, maybe you have a chance and you went toe-to-toe with Alabama. I mean, uh, Notre Dame. Here's what scares me. Jacksonville State. Like, it's the next game out. Like, and, you know, Jermaine Johnson's comment, I know we're at Georgia pod, but I had to troll the SEC with this one because I'm sure you guys saw the comment from him. He said, I've been in a lot of, uh, the crowd definitely surprised me a little bit. I've been in some big games and some big crowds, but nothing like that. Played two years in the SEC before coming to Florida State. But 
he's probably not ever seen anything like he's going to see against Jacksonville State. So probably be like, there's going to be a hangover effect. People, you know, paid, saved up money to come there. It will not be that big crowd. This to me will be another kind of step. This is a foundational year. I've said that all along. Like you got to build building blocks. Florida State's got to show the maturity. Man, we got punched in the mouth. It was devastating, but we are mature enough to come back and beat a team that we're supposed to beat, handle our business and get out of there. So like I'm not I think it does look like a bowl team clearly from what we saw, but they got to show the maturity to develop and we'll see. Can I can I address one more thing about this game though? Because yeah. there's comments to to Luke, who is very mad at us for not calling out Notre Dame the same way we called out North Carolina. There's a couple huge differences in the way North Carolina played and the way Notre Dame played. First of all, the biggest one is Notre Dame won. Yes. North Carolina didn't. Also, the other biggest one is North Carolina, as we talked about the other day, was soft in that game. They came out soft. They got punched in the face and they never really hit back. Virginia Tech let them. Virginia Tech was bad in the second half and it gave North Carolina all the chances in the world to win that game. UNC was lucky to be that close. Mm hmm. Like, yeah, for sure. So I had this team at like 5.7 wins in my projections. After last night, I still have them at 5.7 wins, which means I did upgrade them slightly in their upcoming games because obviously you had to remove whatever you gave Notre Dame, which I think was like 0.2. You know, so I have upgraded them in future games. That means that bowl is a little bit more likely than not. Wake for you know, I'm not going to get into the whole schedule analysis here. I am interested to see if Milton actually can be the guy. They didn't blitz him except for one time. When they did, it was incomplete. Uh, also, I thought the way that Notre Dame defended him was largely the same plan that they used to defend Jordan Travis, which was kind of force the give, keep Travis pinned in. He's the most explosive rusher on the team, which is why you saw Jay Sean Corbin rip off an 89-yarder because of the way that Notre Dame played that, I think. Um, I, I If I'm playing McKenzie Milton, I am not going to play him going forward the same way I play Jordan Travis. I'm probably going to blitz him a little bit more, too. I Look, he has been flat-out bad at practice at times and not like the second best quarterback, but sometimes the third best quarterback when he's actually been in there. I think he has it in him to actually play at a decently high level, but I'm not convinced that that the five of seven that he showed when he came in as the backup is what we're going to get out of him going forward. I I, I need to see more. I would continue to play both quarterbacks. I think he's a gamer. Like I, that's, that's what I keep going back to because, and granted, who knows what the injury holds, but I heard the same things. I saw the same things at practice. Some guys, when they get out there and they're live bullets flying, because I don't think he – like when you watch him practice, he doesn't look that fast. He doesn't look that elusive, but he's like – he's shifty. Like he's got some moves. He's got some elusivity. And I do think he's more comfortable in the system. Like if they blitz, he knows where to go with the ball. He's going to trust where to go with it. And I don't – I think Jordan looks around a little bit more and gets a little bit jittery and doesn't trust it as much. So, so. something that amused me about that last night, though, with Travis and Milton, it has nothing to do with how it's going to go going forward. It was just that when Milton came in for Travis, the Notre Dame defense was treating him the same way on like RPOs and handoffs, the same way they were treating Travis. And I'm like, guys, do we do we not remember the injury he's coming back from? You really don't have to show him that much respect here. The guy's on the sideline with a Theragun on his foot and leg, like before he goes in. I mean, literally, yeah. like, Brendan Sinona knows 24-7 pointed. I was like, look, he's got to, I mean, he's, Clearly, there's something wrong with, with hey, the footsteps. I use the Theragun on the golf course for 18 holes, all right? The Theragun's are miracle You're workers. a Theragun? Yeah, you're like, not like 23. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but they are. They can be used just to keep you warm. Just saying. I love it. So, uh, again, like we said, one of the 
sections that I always want to carve out time for during our Monday shows is the opportunity to, uh, we've, we've had a chance to digest some things. We've also had a chance to sort of see everyone else's takes. Like we're first out the door on Saturday night. Then Sunday comes along. We get to read the columns. We get to take in more information and, uh, some of the narratives maybe haven't all been formulated. And with, uh, this, this Notre Dame Florida state game, I wanted to, to use the launching point for my, uh, this this pod is overwhelmed. I mean, just disgustingly overwhelmed with the ACC boys uh, since the the recent swaps. But with Clemson's loss and Miami's loss, with the way that North Carolina looked in its game, with Georgia Tech taking an L to a Northern Illinois team that, by some power ratings, is really really bad. Florida State exceeding expectations as we go into this Ole Miss Louisville game. Do you think that the narrative that the ACC is down or that this was a bad weekend for the ACC, how much credence do you give that uh, as we start to move forward? Wait, look at the Pac-12. The Pac-12 was awful. Look at them. Don't look at the ACC. I'm just trying to divert your attention so we can look at something else because it was bad. It was it's okay bad. to have your worst teams lose. Yeah, it's, it's not okay to have your best exactly. Teams like right. the ACC has had Clemson pay no attention to the man behind the curtain that is some of the other stuff going on in the league they had their best teams lose it does suck to see jeff sims go down and, and, and his arm in a sling uh, I, I don't think they lose to georgia tech had that not happened probably or to niu that not happened probably but now i mean georgia tech could go three and nine you know so duke oh yeah duke losing to charlotte was duke another big part charlotte. of this too yeah like their best teams lost and their worst teams lost uh, it was so a horrible not, it was a horrific good. weekend for the acc i do think there's a lot of football left, like in all of it. Like Miami losing that bad was more about Bam. Like Bama's going to do that to everybody this year. So, so now let's see what happens with Miami. Let's see what like it was an awful look for North Carolina, but let's see what happens with Virginia Tech. Like, can they be a nine or ten win team, and North Carolina be a you know eight nine or ten win team? Like, but it was an awful look to start the season with those opportunities out in front of you and to fail that big it was an awful look. And now for Clemson, who the narrative all year long, because I can't, this is going to be, because both fan bases, let's be honest, like not the most likable. And like I, Clemson fans usually like me and they're pretty cordial to me. Georgia fans do not. But just wait until Georgia goes to the SEC championship game. They get rolled by Bama. Clemson rolls. They roll through the ACC championship game. And then we're debating one loss Georgia, one loss Clemson, and you know, well, we're head to head matters, but Clemson's offense comes alive, and well, wait a second, they played each other. It's that's going to be the debate that's going to drive these fan bases insane, and who the heck knows how you choose if it comes down to them, or we could see a rematch. Maybe well, it's those two and Bama and somebody else. The good news this year, the ACC is if as time has shown, if you're going to lose do it at the beginning of the season because by the yep. time we get around late November when it's Dutch to really matter, nobody remembers late August at that point. So it's if, if North Carolina recovers and wins out from here, they'll be fine. If Miami wins out from here, they'll be fine. And if Clemson wins out from here, honestly, I think if they're playing well at the end of the year and it's that exact same scenario you just brought up and Georgia's coming off like maybe getting its butt kicked by Alabama in the SEC title game, Clemson will probably get the spot over Georgia. You know what was surprising to me was the play, and I know you guys already broke down this game. I just wanted to follow up and say, like DJ, to me that looked like a quarterback who's been has spent an entire offseason 
with a different color jersey on so he doesn't get hit. The you know in practice he's protected and he sees everything clearly and he reads everything out. And he's got plenty of time and this happened all the time when I was in college or in the NFL. You have a blitz coming and you throw it and the defender's like, I would have had you. I would have sacked you. And you're like, no, no, no. You wouldn't have had me. I got that out. And then all of a sudden live bullets are on. And I was really surprised at how slow DJ's feet were, his eyes were. He was, he was literally staring down a lot of passes. I was really surprised that he didn't have a sense of urgency and it never really came along. And it like he's going to have – now he doesn't have to because it's ACC, but – He's going to have to work on that or else they're not going to beat anybody this year with that offensive line. He's got to speed up the process some. But it kind of reminded me with all these quarterbacks, aside from Bryce Young, who's playing at Bama, like they all have to develop some. Just the way Spencer Rattler did last year. Like he was kind of a work in progress. These young quarterbacks, C.J. Stroud, um, whether it's D.J., you know, whatever first-year starter it is, it's going to take some time for them to get their feet underneath them. Do you know what the hottest take is? The hottest take? (laughs) Shouldn't have gone out to the West Coast to get a quarterback. Screwed up. Take off California now, but there is something to it. Should have stayed in Georgia. Should have should have stayed where they're tougher. Mm. They're they're solid. Um, no, but I one of the things just again, like when we recorded the show, I hadn't gotten a chance to see post game press conferences, hadn't gotten a chance to really check in, but I love that Kirby was even a little surprised at his defense's performance. Or not surprised. He was like yeah, I'll tell you, I I didn't expect us to look that athletic. Like he was just, he just see he he Kirby said we had DJ confused. Like he came out and he said it. He was like, we got him. Like we absolutely had the edge on DJ Uyunglele and Clemson's offense. He was confused. We were faster. We were more athletic. Like based on everything that Kirby had watched on tape, and I'm paraphrasing some of this, but he was expressing the point that. Like, wow, this Georgia defense, even for him, somebody who watches and, and grades this team uh, every single day, breathes it. Even he was like, we we did it. We got him. That was like a Indomitian Sioux, Marcel Darius takeover game from the inside for Georgia. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think, like, guys who, like, you remember singular games, right? Indomitian Sioux destroying uh, Texas. Oh, God. what a I guess Marcel was. Darius also destroying Texas. 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 <laughs> it, I'm, not, I'm not trying to pick on Texas here. There's a couple other ones we could probably remember, but uh, well, Eddie Goldman destroying Clemson in 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 2012. Uh, you know, I that was just so freaking. Like, how is this dude not in the NFL? He like that that is not like that is not appropriate for him to be playing college football. That 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 is really unfair. Um, yeah. The the good news for DJ is he's not going to be facing that again until maybe in the playoff. Right. Yeah. Right. My favorite line from the reaction pod was Fornelli saying, wait, that was the same thing Wisconsin Penn State that we watched earlier at noon. It was. And yeah. That's what drove me nuts too, Tom, because I am a defender of like the offenses weren't that great. The defenses were great in both games, but both offenses didn't look great like in the, in the Wisconsin Penn State game and in the Clemson Georgia game. So like my takeaway from that was Georgia, congrats on the win. But if you want to beat Bama, you have got, and I know they had guys out, which is the big part of it. But they're going to have to – they can't win with that game plan offensively against Bama. So that, to me, is going to have – but again, now they get the, the cakewalk of their schedule as well where they can get JT Daniels going. But that was – I was hoping to see more from, from the offense of Georgia. But cl- that's credit to Clemson's defense too. Did I, well, did I share scoring. my ga- – 
Oh, did I share my Galaxy Brain take on that on the pod, or was that just in a text with you, Chip? No, I heard it on the reaction pod. I okay. heard that. Yeah. But like the whole daytime, nighttime thing? No, what no. was that? Okay, my, this is my Galaxy Braining right here. <laughs> Wisconsin and Penn State suck because they played a defensive suck fest in the day. Ah. But when it happens at night in primetime on the big game, it's like, oh, look at these defenses. These guys are awesome. Look at the lights shining off their helmets. These are monsters. So I feel like the big noon Saturday kind of impacts the way people view the teams. It's like, oh, these guys can't be that good. They're playing during the day. Yeah, I know, because college football audience has beer goggles and whatever we watch <laughs> later in the what? day is awesome. And whatever we watch at the 1030, like Pac-12 after dark is thanks to um, beverages. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you think that it's cooler because of uh, of where you at in enjoying your college football Saturday when it's 12 you know you're just you're not quite to that point yet so we need more defensive big 10 slugfests under the lights and we'd be talking about how the big 10 has the best defenses in the country yeah i will say uh, there were fewer open guys in georgia clemson that were just like missed by qbs and fewer just like out and out drops like i thought that the the secondaries pretty much blanketed the opposing receivers i thought the like the level of like defensive line dominance, just physically whipping each other, was probably higher in the night one. I thought. I thought yeah, Jahan Dotson was wide open a lot. Yeah, yeah. Penn State was a little more sloppy. Passing. Mm-hmm. Like then you guys feel it was like sloppier. Like they could, the, the potential for points was certainly greater in the morning game. The night game was like, this is if, not happening. Well, my takeaway. I also think that, like, as poorly as they played, the caliber of quarterback in that Georgia Clemson game was on a much different level than this it was in Penn State, Wisconsin. Yeah. My my thing was if if Clifford or somebody else, but if somebody can if Clifford gains more confidence, if he becomes more accurate, like I don't know, miraculously, whatever, like there's something there, Penn State could be a tough out for Ohio State. But because they were getting guys open, he left a lot on the field. That was my takeaway. Shout out to Coca because he dropped this note because it would just put a bow on the ACC talk. Massive weekend this weekend for the ACC. Virginia, Illinois, watch out, Tom. Game Pitt, Tennessee, Rutgers, Syracuse, App State, Miami. I don't know if you guys saw the line. I think it's only seven and a half or yeah. eight. Like, that's a dangerous spot. Don't get beat by Bama twice. And then I already mentioned Florida State, Jacksonville State. Like, I'm nervous about that one. So, like, you think it's bad now? Like, let's hope next week we're not having this conversation again. Like, Don't how bad Saturday. can it get? I'll give you 20, Danny. With that, I'll, I'll take FSU. You will? All right. I hope you're yeah. right. Yeah. On the, I, I did get to watch Jack State versus UAB, and they they had like a, 150 yards for garbage time. That like, offense, they still have the QB, but everything else in that offense is terrible. Like, yeah, yeah, real, I was very bad. disappointed in that offense because I took Jack State and the points. And the problem is, got to score. Oh, you don't like 50 that. yards a quarter, Tom? No, no, I was <laughs> I was very much not enjoying that game. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, a busy, busy week in all of college football as week one bleeds into Monday, and then week two is going to be right around the corner. And amidst it all, we we got Big 12 expansion bubbling beneath the surface. Into that, some very, very significant headlines uh, from the, on the injury front. Uh, and one head coach has had enough. That and more next. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. 
Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. If you are watching right now on the live stream, uh, we love the questions. We love the comments. Keep them coming. And at the end of the show, uh, we will circle back and we will answer some of your audience questions. But first, the Big 12 expansion story has really picked up and increased in pace to the point where a lot of the reporting is pointing to not out, not only uh, invitations going out, but those invitations being accepted for Big 12 expansion. Four candidates are at the front of the line. It is Cincinnati, it is Houston, it is UCF, and it is BYU. And those four, as we have discussed uh, here on the podcast before, if you throw them all together and say, you know, who's at the top of the list? Like these are the no nonsense like picks. If you're the big 12 and you're trying to expand, does it, is it weird for y'all that this is all happening as we're trying to go through uh, the season? Are you, um, are you concerned at all? Is it even like a front burner topic for you as we start to consider that by the end of this week, we could be looking at a future where there might even be like exit and arrival dates for when BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF four consistently top 40 programs over the last half decade or so uh, are going to be joining the Big 12. What Honestly, what I was wondering is, because is, we talked about this a little bit last week, I think the four teams that they're inviting are the obvious four candidates to ask to join. But what I was wondering is, should they stop at four? Should they maybe add two more? Because I'm my thought process is, okay, you're adding UCF, so you're getting into Florida, which is good for recruiting. But don't you want to add like a second Florida team to maybe ensure that, you know, everybody's getting at least one game in Florida per year as much as possible to help with recruiting in that way? So it's like, would you maybe bring in USF too? To that way, at least you're getting, you know, both Tampa and Orlando. And then if there was another, whether it's Boise State or somebody else that looks attractive, because if you're, if you're taking those teams, the AAC is up for grabs as it is. So that's kind of what I was thinking. But as far as realignment on its own, I just, I'm happy that we have games to distract from it, honestly. Yeah. Why do you think they're doing it now? I have a, I have a thought on it, and it's that they don't want to become irrelevant and and let a narrative get established that they are a lesser league because they have fewer teams. People will still talk about them being a lesser league because they have fewer good teams. But if you stay at, you know, like a, a very low number of actual teams, I think it you kind of lose standing a little bit. So I think that's why they went out and, and did this move so fast. To do you think that it was a narrative that could be established even within the like there was a major disconnect 
when you're saying, uh, you know, look at it was a win. I guess you know UCF was down, USF was getting pasted, Tulsa was losing to UC Davis. Reports were that these three teams were going to be leaving the American by the end of the weekend. Dana Holgerson got outscored thirty-one to nothing in the second half by Texas Tech. Like you just you were putting all these uh, storylines together as if uh, conference realignment, which happens at a university president level, and on-field performance were the same thing. Are those is that the narrative you were thinking they were also tr- trying to avoid? Where if the Big Twelve stinks and they only have eight teams and there's no news about expansion, that the college football fan is like just going to give up on the Big Twelve and figure it's just going to dissolve anyway. Right now they are under the label of P five, right? I think they want to avoid any possible excuse to have people remove that label, even if we think this league is probably not very good going forward if it doesn't have Texas Oklahoma. Um, you know, I, I, I think filling the number of teams to remain P5 and not giving somebody that excuse, because it's a fairly easy excuse. Hey, you guys aren't P5 anymore. Like, you lost some teams, you really haven't replaced them. Like, they want to stay that P5 status, I think, and really make their their other P5 conference, uh, you know, affiliates force them out. What, what, what are your predictions on this, then, all three of you, like, they add these four teams. They add BYU, they add Cincinnati, they add Houston, they add UCF. There's the Alliance and the SEC. When playoff expansion talks come, what do you put the odds of the Big 12 being a part of them at? Good. Yeah, especially if it goes yeah. 12 teams. Like, they're going to be a part of something. See, I can't help but think that they're going to be like you, but but I was just kind of saying. I think they're going to be kind of relegated to more of a G five status with those four leagues. That's what they're going to look at them like. And I don't know if the Pac twelve has a legitimate argument, but hey, the Pac twelve has got its alliance with the Big Ten and ACC. So, but okay. will it matter with twelve teams? Like it, like I think that label group of five, power five, kind of diminishes if there's twelve teams. Like you, I mean, strength schedule is all those uh, metrics that we use will still be determined. But if you're conference champ and you're you know, in this new kind of whatever they're going to call it, Big 12, Big 14, whatever it goes to, I think you're still in the conversation of the playoffs, so does it matter? I don't think 12 is set anymore. No, I, I clearly don't either. But don't you feel like eight is like the worst case scenario? Well, and what if be we more do eight with six autos? Yeah. What if we do two? Hey, stop <laughs> that nonsense. Stop that nonsense. Get out of here with that. But eight, By the way, six dude, autos and two wild cards prevents a total SEC takeover of the playoff system in a way where six autos and a 12-team system, you can pretty much assume that four minimum are probably going to be SEC teams. I don't think they'll do autos. Oh, you think they'll just t- scrap them all together? I think they're going to scrap the autos because I think we actually saw a hint of what they're going to do with the proposed plan last time. Remember, it was basically the the highest ranked conference champions that that way, like somebody could get left out. I, I, I don't think that some of the better leagues are interested in the autos. I think they they want a chance to get more of their teams in in a year where maybe the Pac-12 or the ACC or, or the Big 12 or whomever doesn't have really a, a, um, a worthy champion. By the way, uh, do you guys remember Syracuse pit to the AC ACC was announced like in September? Yes. That was the middle mm-hmm. of the season. So this has been down, we've been down this road before as far as you know, middle of the season announcements. Is there any part of you that's looking at this, knowing what 
Bowlesby was accusing Mike Oresco, the commissioner of the American, like, you're going to come after my guys? Oh, really? I'm going to come after your guys. Like, there is some, there's got to be personality conflicts behind there and egos hurt. And this is, it's nasty out there. Like, this is survival of the fittest. So Bob Bowlesby just trying to do whatever to keep the Big 12 relevant. And if it means going after that, that conference that was going to steal my guys and has always tried to claim they're the power six. And now good luck. Like I do think this is interesting though. Cause I felt really bad for Boise state. I felt really bad for South Florida, like mm-hmm. the programs now. And there's a lot of like feel bad for everybody. Cause now what happens to the American and everybody else? If G5 this- super conference. Yeah. That'd be Do great. It. I would love to have them their own whatever's, playoff. But. Whatever's left, like whatever, whatever's left of Conference USA, the American Mountain West, the Sun Belt, get the 16 best group of five brands and teams, form a group of five super conference. And remember, as I've mentioned here before, look this up on Google Maps, but there is bad hurt feelings and they are being shared over grilled chicken sandwiches at some office park cafeteria because the American and the big 12 conference offices are right down the street from each other in Dallas to the point where windows from conference rooms can see into each other's conference rooms. (laughs) It's incredible. Okay. Uh, Three uh, big injuries that I've got updates from so far here during Monday's press conferences. Uh, We'll just toss it around real quickly to, uh, I guess, where where do you think uh, Mo, Ibra, Mo Ibrahim might be the answer anyway? All right, Ronnie Bell, wide receiver at Michigan. Looked awesome until he goes down with the knee injury. Jim Harbaugh it says he's out for the season. We also get an update from P.J. Fleck. Fearing the worst, Muhammad Ibrahim uh, out for the season. Additionally, uh, Alabama's Chris Allen, one of the team's leaders on defense statistically a year ago, he had a, had a foot fracture and he will also be missing the rest of the season. Uh, thoughts on, on these three injuries. If there was another one that uh, I missed so far during the preparation for the show, definitely shout that one out. But it, I mean, we've got stars that are getting scrapped in ways that you have to make some adjustments in terms of our expectations for teams. I don't know if this was the direction you were going to go, but maybe this was the answer you didn't think you'd get. I think the Ronnie Bell injury is a bigger deal than the Mo Ibrahim injury is. And I think Ibrahim is a better better player. He's obviously, or not, I don't want to say better player, but he's a more bigger part of what Minnesota does offensively. But I also think that the running back position is easier to replace, especially in an offense like Minnesota's. I think Ibrahim's a great player, but I don't think he's irreplaceable. I think when I look at Michigan... Ronnie Bell brings a vertical presence to that offense that Cornelius Johnson showed Flash's ability to do it last year, and he's going to have to step into that role. It's just you're a much stronger offense if you have two guys who can fill that role instead of just one. So I think that's going to have a much larger impact on Michigan's ability to move the ball through the air than the Ibrahim injury will on Minnesota's ability to move the ball on the ground. I, I agree with Tom there on that. Uh, I I am not worried about Alabama's defense yet because of the Chris Allen injury. If they start to have another injury or another injury on top of that, then I really would because I think they do have some depth concerns there. Their starters are really, really good. They are pretty young behind those starters, and we'll have to see how much they tap into that depth. Typically, Bama signs absolute super freaks, uh, so a lot of times that that depth is pretty good. And right now, I know we got a question about this in, in the, uh, the the Apple podcast, so I'll just take one of these. They got asked, does Bama look physically superior to the rest of the sport to you again like they kind of did between like 09 and 12? And I thought about it and I was like, 
Yeah, like last year and this year so far, they kind of do. In a way, they maybe didn't from like 13 to 19. What do you guys think about that? This is a total tangent. I'm sorry to derail the question. but I, <laughs> no, like, I think they've always been superior. The game is just different. The game is different, and Saban evolved to the place yeah. where he caught up with offenses, and then now it's even more glaring how much more talent they have than everybody else. Yeah, it, it was it, like Alabama was keeping people closer because of the style of offense they played more than anything. Like and that's fair. why I used to get in trouble with Bama fans. I used to hate it. And I'd be like, you guys can get beat because you're not, you're too static on offense. You're too bland. You're using game managers. And then that's why I've been so bullish on Bama the last couple of years because all of a sudden now you see the true capability, which is scary, how good they are. Like that's to me what's the story behind Bama. Yeah, I'm going to say that uh, Ibrahim stinks just because you lean on him so much. And uh, and I, I saw a tweet over the weekend where it was the, you know, the handshake. The t- and it was like uh, Minnesota, Minnesota's offense and North Carolina's offense. And the handshake was running RPO without an X receiver who can get separation. <laughs> it's like, how badly does Tanner Morgan and Minnesota's offense – like like Sam Howell, you know, where he's got Josh Downs, but they need a number two. Like, without good wide receiver play and now without just your 32-carry, 130-yard running back, man, our our NFL, our future NFL quarterback, Tanner Morgan, is going to have to really impress him when it comes time for those pro days in that camp because I think it's going to be tough to be able to uh, get that offense clicking. And listen, there's a lot of time left. They've got a veteran offensive line, but um, – Ibrahim feels very significant in terms of how I think Minnesota can do with, if you want to downgrade Wisconsin, I don't. Obviously, we have to upgrade Iowa. As we look at the rest of that division, you feel like you could put Minnesota in the third spot potentially, but you cannot do it, I think, with any confidence, especially after the injury. Did you – I'm sorry. I agree with all you guys. And I I think running back – just by position is easier to replace. And clearly he's an unbelievable back, but it's not as devastating to me as the importance of a wide receiver in this game. Did you mention the uh, Thibodeau injury at Oregon? I know it's not a season-ending one, uh, season-ending one, but that to me is of massive implications for this week. Yeah, for this week. I did hear Bruce Feldman say uh, that the Oregon people he talks to believe Thibodeau will play this week. I just saw the number. Ball. Didn't the number jump big time for Ohio State? Isn't it up to like two touchdowns now? It's like wasn't that also because we all saw Anthony Brown? But you know yeah. what, guys, guys, do we really have that much more information about Ohio State now than we did in the preseason? No, no. no. If you liked Ohio State, you needed to bet it at nine, nine and a half, ten, ten and a half during the months of like May, June, July, August. Like that, that was a time to get this. Not after the rest of the country remembers. Oh wait, they've got free like they got free <laughs> receiver. You know what I'm saying? Like I I just I not that for they'll probably cover the 14 and a half. And honestly, the implied team total on this, I was looking at the over under, it's like 64 with the line of like 14, so that's what? 38 38 and a half, Tom? Like we're uh, probably yeah. going to get another team total under 40 for Ohio State. That could be a principal play. I might just start betting Ohio State over on team totals at anything like it starts with the 3. Yeah. Overs for me. Yeah. They get off the bus. <laughs> they score 40 points. Right. Yeah. Did Ohio State get off the bus? Yep. They'll I'm score kind 40. of stealing Chip's principle here. Sorry. About that. Um, okay, let's uh, let's do some audience questions. I'll be sure to read them also for the uh, the listeners. YouTube.com slash Cover3 if you'd like to join in on the fun. 
This one is from Mikey with Rattler, Howell, Spencer Rattler, Sam Howell, DJ Uyunglele struggling in week one. Do you have a value pick for Heisman? I have numerous. Okay, let's roll. Uh, my favorite one is Chris Olave, still 100 to 1 to win the Heisman. And I think that it's not just Olave. Like I'm using him as an example because I think he's the big play guy in the Ohio State offense. And he did a bunch of big plays on Thursday and he caught two touchdowns. But I think if you look at the odds right now, just the top wide receivers in the country, there's a whole lot of 100 to 1s, 80 to 1s, 75 to 1s. I would take a few stabs on them because I think, as we talked about before, all these quarterbacks are going to have similar numbers at the end of the year. And as we saw last year, Devontae Smith was the one guy when you were looking at Heisman candidates whose numbers popped out in comparison to other players at the position. And I think that really did push him to winning the Heisman. So I think wide receivers are being very much undervalued on the Heisman market. And I would look that direction. If Waddle doesn't, I, Ty, don't disagree with you. I just have a good question for you. If Waddle doesn't go down last year, isn't Mac Jones the guy winning the Heisman? Possibly. Yeah, ball spread around more for sure. That's what scares me about Ohio State. But Garrett Wilson's a hundred to one too. So <laughs> right, but like if they share the if they share the love, I I think the the sharing of, of the ball is sort of fact is, is sort of priced into the odds. But I agree, Olave is probably a little a little short right there. What about you, Bud? Do you have any uh, in any spots where you're looking at it and thinking that there might be some opportunity, especially with which, by the way, like. I think that I really might move into the principle that anyone who spends an entire offseason is the Heisman Trophy favorite. I think I'm just going to fade them against the spread week one. I mean, this <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like, I don't know whether it's like the market that does it or the odds makers that put it in or the players themselves who just mentally as a 18 to 22 year old may or may not be set for that very, very first you know, pop. I mean, I think Danny said live bullets on this show like four times. I mean, it's clearly something that matters to quarterbacks uh, in a way that I'm not going to be able to understand from my time as a PA announcer. Uh, so, um, look, I I am not going to bet this. I don't want this to be confused for like betting advice, but you know, just for fun, I could paint you a narrative that JT Daniels at 18 to one is a little bit short right now. Um, yeah. If Georgia finally wins the SEC with a quarterback that's actually chucking the ball around, which they will almost certainly have to do to beat Alabama, right? Um, there, I think JT Daniels will have a pretty good Heisman case because that means they will have gotten some guys back from injury, but those guys will not have enough of a track record to take any kind of votes away from JT. Defensive players don't actually win the Heisman. And if they get hot second half of the season because guys start coming back from injury, they beat Alabama. I mean, what, what What's the price for Georgia right now to to win the SEC, I'm trying to think what it's probably about 300, 350. So I got like there. plus two hundred, plus two forty. Yeah, I would much rather have JT Daniels at eighteen to one than Georgia at plus two forty for the SEC. And nothing, and that's uh, more of a value. Or is there anything specifically from JT Daniels that you feel like you saw from Week One that would give you the the inkling that he's set to have a Heisman season? Well, his first week was not the most standout week. I, I think we would probably agree. Um, mm -hmm. Next week, I think he'll probably throw the first touchdown for Georgia for the season. But I do think that they have some explosive playmakers who could come back from injury. If the offensive line gets a little bit healthier, they'll, they'll start putting up some points. The rest of the SEC, sorry, Barton, looks like it's pretty ripe for you to drop a ton of points on Tennessee, Vandy, South Carolina. Uh, I don't think Kentucky's defense is quite what it has been in recent years. 
Florida's defense will see. So he could rack up some serious stats there. Um, I, I just, from a value perspective, I would rather have that than, than take Georgia right now. To win right. the SEC. This next question from Jacob, where does Cal go from here? Garbers looked awful, but the run game and defense were still solid. I can see a win versus TCU this week and also a four and eight season. Yeah, that Nevada Cal game was a, a nice one to, you know, have at the, the very end of the day. It was not uh, the full like Carson Strong lighted up experience. I think Jay Norvell has to be happy with the way that uh, Nevada's defense answered the call. Though Strong was good uh, in yeah. this game. Um, what's Where does Cal go from here? Jacob wants to know. I wouldn't be too concerned, honestly, because first of all, I think Nevada's a good team. I think Carson Strong is a very good quarterback. And I think Carson Strong is better than just about every other quarterback in the Pac-12. That might be the best quarterback Cal has to face all season long. So I would, I, I know it stinks to lose your home opener of the season against a group of five team, but I think that could prove to be one of the better group of five teams in the country. And it's got a guy I believe who could be a first round quarterback. So you could easily bounce back and win against TCU. And plus, as we kind of mentioned earlier, it's like the Pac 12, the ACC is covering a lot of, is taking a lot of heat off the Pac 12 right now for the performance because the Pac 12's better teams did win except for Washington. But the bottom of that conference still did look pretty soft to me from what I saw over the weekend. So I, I think there's, I think Cal can still get to a bowl game. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be jumping ship just yet. Yeah. I have Cal, at five, <clears throat> excuse me, at five and seven right now. Um, I think Justin Wilcox is a really good defensive head coach. He just has got to find somebody to come in and run an offense and Washington Cal there's some spots in the Pac-12 that are very pro style and just mm -hmm. not kind of getting with the times and I'm not somebody who believes you have to run spread but I do think you need to, to do something that at least takes advantage of some of the college rules that have made that have made Nick Saban a classic defensive head coach <laughs> say screw it we can't play defense in, in this era due to how people abuse, abuse these rules if you can't beat them join them um just you know, get get an offensive coordinator that, that's willing to open it up a little bit, and I, I think Justin Wilcox will be fine. All right, and then let's get uh, let's get one more before we get out of here. Uh, this one's from Short Round. Short Round says, "Is Iowa State's struggle game against Northern Illinois just a case of saving everything for Iowa, or proof that their offense just can't do anything?" I haven't gone back and watched this yet, so I can't tell you, but I, I did theorize on Saturday night that that very much could have been the case where it was just, we've got Iowa next week. Let's not put anything crazy on tape. We should win this game regardless. How bad would we have looked if we had overreacted to poor performances from Iowa State in week one in any of like the last four or five years? Yeah. Pretty bad. I'm absolutely reserving judgment. I'm also kind of nervous because I popped Iowa when it came out, and now today all the steam came back on uh, – um, on Iowa State. So there's definitely some people with some cash who really like Iowa State this weekend. Will you translate pop and steam? Pop means I bet it. Like right away. Like as soon yeah. as it as soon as it came, you said that doesn't line up with what I've got, snapping it up. Like the like yes. the Bud's Bets columns across multiple websites for years have included like the very early, like this is what I just bet section. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then the steam. Steamed today. Today it got it, it got steamed up. It's like four could go to four and a half some places. We'll think. I haven't checked it in like the last half hour. Uh, but like definitely some money came back hard uh, on Iowa State today when when the limits for like the max bet size came back up. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not somebody who really cares about needing to bet five or ten thousand dollars on a game, so I don't feel the need to wait to bet until later in the week. Some of these groups that need to move that kind of cash do. Yeah, like Steam. Steam is either a big bet or certain betters that you know can that have a history and books will move lines because certain people make certain bets or the syndicates or like if they yeah, right. Like a group releases some numbers and then mm-hmm. they have a bunch of like kind of not bot accounts, but, you know, kind of ghost accounts and, and they're all hitting it. So I guess they can tell based on like the activity. Oh, yeah. They've. Yeah. They know who you are. And they know and a lot of books move on air nowadays, too. Right. Like, so. I guess we can get into this, this is kind of nerdy gambling talk, but who, who cares? If you guys are still listening to the podcast in minute 61, you're degenerate um, anyway. Right. <laughs> so moving on air as a. So or, or or moving on screen basically means typically like the way bookies used to operate, you set your number. Once you got a certain amount of money to one side, you felt like you had to move the number because you were just getting too lopsided of action unless you really wanted to take a stance. Nowadays with stuff, um, not G&J anymore because they got bought, but like, you know, Don Best or any kind of line service that you can look at and you could see like 40 books lined up on your screen. Um, some of these books will see what's coming. At, at certain books and then they'll move before they get hit which is called moving on air or, or moving on screen got it so they're just like identifying the trends and before they have the exposure let's just go ahead and let's stick it close to whatever the Correct. consensus is mm-hmm. going to be they see where it's going and then they move it yeah <sighs> listeners i hope you're learning as much as i do because goodness gracious it's an education i love it uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Bud Elliott 3 You can follow him at Tom Fernell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. We will be back on Wednesdays. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash cover3. Thank you to all of you who tuned in to hang out with us. We do it every single Monday at 3 p.m. live. We do it every Thursday with the locks live. We do it every Saturday night with our instant reaction shows live. YouTube.com slash cover three. If you subscribe to the YouTube channel and cut your notifications on, you get an alert when we go live. Hey, that makes it easy. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Run the option, Yukon. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.